So today we are on the final part of our three-part message series called Misunderstood Messages. And today, like the last two weeks, uh, you're giving me far too much time there. I'll take it all if you want it, want me to, but... (laughs) I mean, that's 10 minutes over my time. I always go 10 minutes over anyway, so you don't want to. Okay, so it's the last part. And like the last two weeks, I am going to attempt to get through three different points, three different scriptures that are misunderstood. We've been looking at Bible verses, not unknown Bible verses, well-known Bible verses that are quoted a lot, but the meaning of which tend to be misunderstood. So, Just so you don't misunderstand my message series, let me just say all that again as simply as possible. I am not talking about obscure Bible verses. I'm talking about well-known Bible verses. I am not talking about well-known Bible verses that are commonly understood. There'll be no point in doing that. They're commonly understood. I'm talking about well-known Bible verses that are quoted a lot and People can tend to take on a burden because they are quoted in situations that can come across as bringing condemnation or bringing fear or anxiety or something like that when actually that is not the meaning of those verses in their original context. Two weeks ago, we looked at misunderstood messages about life and faith. Last week, we looked, about, we looked at misunderstood messages about the devil, and this week we're looking, about, looking at misunderstood messages about the family, about the family. Not necessarily about family life, but about different people in the family and verses that are quoted about that. And so I want to start off with one which is really extreme, and yet you will recognize the verse as soon as we look at it. So the first misunderstood message is this. You want to put it up? We have to turn our backs on our family to truly follow Christ. Now, this comes from a verse in the Bible that when you read it in English, it does sound like that is what it is saying. But if that's what it's saying, it contradicts so many other verses in the Bible. And not only that, it is Jesus who is saying the words in the verse we're going to look at in a moment. And it's not just that if it means what it looks like it means at first glance in English, not only is it contradicting other parts of the Bible, Jesus is then contradicting things that he said again and again and again elsewhere in the Gospels. So this is a misunderstood message. Some people think or believe or are taught that you have to turn your back on your family to truly follow Christ. And it comes from this verse that uh, in, in which you want to put it up, in which Jesus says those words, but he says it within a greater context. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not, now here's the words, hate his father and mother, 
wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I mean, like, that is, like, quite strong language there. I mean, he didn't, it doesn't even just say hate other people. It looks like he lists them. And so, he said, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then in context, what he's saying is this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? And so he's saying, before anyone embarks on a major project, they hopefully are wise enough to first estimate the cost of this project so they're able to complete it. And he is then likening that to becoming a disciple. If you want to become one of my disciples, Jesus says, if you want to become one of my followers, you need to know in advance that there will be a cost to, to pay. Not everybody will be supportive of your decision. And, you know, so I, I remember years ago I had a friend in Scotland and he, uh, he, he, he was a Christian. He came from a, maybe a little bit of a rough background. And so he had a lot of friends in that rough background. But he, was, he had been a Christian for many years. But he told me about one of his friends. One of his friends who was always in trouble with the law and always in difficult situations. Well, his friend one day came to church and became a Christian and was like radically transformed. And he went back home and he told his father, I've become a Christian. Now, remembering that he was always in trouble with the law and all that kind of thing, you would think his father would be pleased. His father spat in his face and said, I would rather you came home and told me I was a, you were a homosexual. Now, his father hated homosexuals, so that was the extent of the feeling that he had. And then his father refused to talk to him. Can you imagine somebody saying, I have made a change in my life for the better. You might not believe the philosophy and the theology behind what I have done, but I have decided to stop going down this road of trouble and turn my life around, and your own family members are the opposite of supportive. Sometimes there's a cost to, to pay. I used to, many years ago, I used to travel to Nigeria regularly, and there was a young pastor there um, on staff at the church that I would go to. His name was Pastor Sam, and he was just, he was full of joy, and he was always sharing the gospel, and he was working with all the young people in the church. He was a great guy. Then one day I heard him tell his testimony, his story, and I didn't know it before. And when he was like 15 or 16, he was probably about 19 or 20 by the time I met him. When he was about 15 or 16, he was brought up in an Islamic family and he had a, a lot of problems. It was actually a very dysfunctional family and there was violence in it and he had a lot of problems and a lot of poverty. And one day he went, he went along to this evangelistic crusade and he heard the gospel and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he came back home, and when his brother found out that his younger brother had become a Christian, 
he got out the machete to behead him. And Sam, you know what Sam, I mean, like, I would have, I would have ran away. Sam knelt down and started to pray in tongues, waiting for the blow to happen, and nothing happened. And he looked up, and his brother was shaken and dropped the machete and ran away. But Sam was prepared to give his life for his faith, and he had only been a Christian for a matter of days. Sometimes your family, your friends, your colleagues might not share your joy that Jesus has changed your life. Okay? Now, but this doesn't say that other people will hate you. This looks like it says you have to hate them. In context, Jesus is talking about counting the cost. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this. This um, cults, you know, cults love this verse. I've studied cults and watched documentaries and read books of stories of people that have escaped from cults and so on. And this is a verse that cults use a lot. To Once they get somebody into their cult or into their commune, they show them this verse from the Bible and then tell them that they have to cut off all contact with their family. However, here's a little problem. You see, our English Bibles are translated from Greek manuscripts. And the reason they're translated from Greek manuscripts is because the earliest, the oldest manuscripts that we have copies of are in Greek. And translators want to use the oldest manuscripts we've got. However, Jesus didn't speak and teach in Greek. He spoke and taught in Aramaic. We also have Aramaic manuscripts and when you compare the Greek and Aramaic manuscripts, you can see in a few places that there are Aramaic words that depending on the little dots and accents that are above the letters, the word could be translated a few ways. And when you compare the Aramaic and the Greek, you see that sometimes the Greek version has translated it in a very strong way. But this word for hate... In Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, that word can mean hate, but it can mean five or six different things as well, depending on the context and depending on the tone of voice that you give to it. And in Aramaic, it doesn't say that you have to hate your father and mother. It actually says that you have to prioritize your relationship with Jesus Christ first. It doesn't say hate, it says put to the side, which is an Aramaic term for prioritizing things. Because if this, if this really meant we were to hate people, let's look at the next slide. The next slide just doesn't make sense. The Bible says honor your father and mother. It doesn't say hate them. The Bible says love one another, not hate people. The Bible says you have to love your wife, not hate your wife. In fact, the Bible even says you have to love your enemies and bless those who curse you. So that is showing us that, that maybe we need to take another look at that other verse. So let's go on to the next slide, please. Next one. Here is the Aramaic translation by an Aramaic scholar, Dr. George Lamsa. Jesus said, he who comes to me and does not put aside an Aramaic term meaning prioritize, 
his father and mother, his brothers and sisters, his wife and children, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Do you see that Pastor Sam in Nigeria prioritized his faith in Christ even above his own life? Let alone above what his brother wanted him to do? And so this is not telling us that we have to hate anybody or we have to cut people out of our life or anything like that. Because you see, God is not a God of hate. Next slide, please. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. So we have to love people. We have to love God with all our heart and love other people. But the love of God and love from God is the priority. And that's what comes first. So let's just put up the actual message, the true message of that verse. The message of Luke 14, verse 25. This is what Jesus is saying in context and in meaning. If we want to truly be disciples of Jesus, we must prioritize our life and relationship to put him first. We follow Jesus regardless of what our family say. But we love our family, we love our friends, we even love our enemies. We did a prayer session at the end of worship and many of you would have been praying for many of these people in your family. Maybe even that they come to faith in the living God because you don't hate them, but you want them to come in and experience what you have as well. So everybody say after me, hate bad, love good. Really easy, isn't it? Okay, let's look at the next one. The next misunderstood message. God hates people who have been divorced and they can never be forgiven or remarry. Now, maybe you've never heard that, but just Google it on the internet. It is like everywhere, okay? And so, this is a message that comes across. Nobody ever says it quite... Well, actually, I did hear somebody saying it quite that strongly once. I had... um, I had a fat, should I do? I won't say who it was. I knew a person once, right? Because I didn't get their permission for the story. I, I knew this person once, this couple, and they were married and they got divorced. The man had, had an affair, the wife found out, they split up, they got divorced. The man then went on and married somebody else and the woman then went on and married somebody else. The woman then became a Christian. I then met the man one day and he told me that a colleague at his work was a Christian and was sharing the gospel with him. And he was really interested in becoming a Christian. But there was one big thing putting him off. And I said, what was it? He says, well, my friend at work has showed me this verse in the Bible where it says God hates divorce. And he's told me that if I become a Christian, God doesn't recognize my second marriage. So if I become a Christian, I have to divorce my second wife, and my first wife has to divorce her second husband, and then the two of us, because we're now Christians, have to get remarried again, because that's the only marriage that God recognizes. And all I'm going to do is break up two other families 
And this was the thing putting him off because somebody told him he couldn't become a Christian because he was divorced and remarried. I guess I'm screwed as a pastor then. I'm in a... <laughs> so, God hates people who have been divorced and they can never be forgiven or remarried. Why do people think that? Well, they get it from this Bible verse. Put it up. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. It doesn't say I hate divorcees. It doesn't say I will never forgive you. And in actual fact, even if the word was divorce, which it's not, we'll see in a moment, but even if the word was divorce, it tells us in context that the reason he hates divorce is because people get hurt out from it, including the children. He hates to see. And in fact, if you read the whole passage, he says when you get divorced, it's like a garment being ripped in two. People get ripped apart by divorce. Children get harmed by it. It's not that God hates people who are divorced. God hates people being in emotional pain. But actual fact, it's in our English, it's not all, but in some English translations it says divorce, but that's not even what it's talking about. Put up the whole passage, please. Here's what it says. You have broken your promises to the wife you married when she was young. She was your partner, and you have broken your promises to her, although you promised before God that you would be faithful to her. Didn't God make you one body and spirit with her? And what was his purpose in this? It was that you should have children who are truly God's people. Let's read on. So make sure that none of you breaks his promise to his wife. I hate putting away, says the Lord. Some English translations say divorce and some say putting away. I'll explain it in a minute. Says the Lord God of Israel. I hate it when one of you does such a cruel thing to his wife. Make sure that you do not break your promise to be faithful to your wife. In that culture, in the Middle East at that time, there were two ways that you could end a marriage. One was called divorce, and the other one was called putting away. And the only person who could end the marriage was the man, not the woman. A woman could not end a marriage. Only the man could do that. And with divorce, if a man divorced his wife, what he did was he, he wrote her in his own hand a certificate of divorce. Moses gave this law so that a woman could say, I am legally divorced. She would have that written document in her hand that she was legally divorced. And if she was legally divorced, then she was free to remarry. But there was another way of ending a marriage that the man could do. If he was really upset with his wife and he wanted to make her life as miserable as possible, he would not write her a certificate of divorce. He would do something, he would put her away, which basically means throw her out the house. Now she doesn't have a certificate of divorce and she is not legally able to get married. 
a woman in a culture where they have no power and where they are not legally able to get married have one of two options open to them. They can become a beggar or they can become a prostitute or they can starve to death. That's basically their choice. And God is saying that it is an incredibly cruel thing for somebody to end their marriage in such a way that not only has the person been thrown out, but they are going to be destitute for the rest of their life. And so, there's the two Greek words. Put away, apolu. Divorce, apostation. One meant to be legally divorced and free to remarry. The other didn't. Now, this will give you insight into the story of Jesus and the woman at the well at Samaria. Do you remember that a woman comes to the well and she talks to Jesus and Jesus says to her, go and call your husband? And she says, I have no husband. And he says, boy, that's a whopper you just said. You've had five husbands. (laughs) And the man you are now with is not your husband. And she says, oh my goodness, you're a prophet. How did you know that? Now, what that means is, in that culture, in all likelihood, that woman was infertile. She was barren. And her first husband divorced her because she couldn't have children and wrote her a certificate of divorce. And her second husband then, when she didn't produce children, wrote her a certificate of divorce and divorced her. And then her third husband did the same. And then her fourth husband did the same, and her fifth husband didn't even bother writing her a certificate of divorce. He just put her out the house, and she was not legally able to get married, and was now in a relationship with a man she was not married to, and now she was a triple outcast from the community. She was an outcast because she was childless, and in that culture, they saw that as the disapproval of God. She was an outcast because she'd been married five times and she was an outcast because she would be regarded as a harlot because she was now living with a man that she was not married to. What other choice in that society did that woman have? She was powerless. And Jesus treated that woman with respect in a culture where nobody else did. Put up the next slide, please. There are three grounds for legal divorce in the Bible abandonment, adultery, and abuse. And those were the three grounds that people were able to write a certificate of divorce so that the person that they divorced, both parties were then free to get remarried after that. But putting away was different. In Jesus' time, some of the rabbis even had rules like, if your wife burns your dinner, you can throw her out the house. They knew that you couldn't write a certificate of divorce because you could only do it for those three reasons. But they invented putting away, listen to this, for any and every reason. That was the actual sentence. You could throw your wife out of the house for any and every reason, but you could only legally divorce for those three. Next slide, please. 
Okay, here's Dr. Rocco Errico again, our, our Aramaic scholar, and he says this, according to the Eastern Aramaic text of Matthew's gospel, a woman has permission to remarry, providing she is divorced and not just separated. When the question of divorce arises, the sole power is with the husband who exercises unlimited authority over his wife or wives in that culture. For unknown ages, Eastern women were degraded and regarded as man's property, at times even bought and sold in markets. Jesus condemned the practice of husbands abandoning their wives for any arbitrary reason. There is no doubt about it. Jesus championed women's rights at a time that they had none. This is not about God hating people. It's about God giving people another chance at life. Now you might be sitting there saying, okay, that would be good and well if I was the innocent party in my divorce, but I was the guilty party. Well, the good news is, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can repent, we can be forgiven, we can have our hearts transformed, we can be born again, we can have a brand new start in life, God can wipe the slate clean. You can't unscramble eggs once they've been scrambled. You can't undo the mess that we've all made in our past, in our lives. But what God can do is wipe the slate clean and give us all a brand new start. God is a good God. He's a forgiving God and he wants us to be like that too. So what is the actual message? Put up the true message of, of Malachi 2. God calls us to love people and forgive them, including our spouses when they make mistakes. He knows that divorce causes pain to all involved and wants to spare us from that. But he allows us to be free from intolerable situations and he forgives us when we ourselves make wrong decisions. And we all can say, thank God, hallelujah, and amen, that God is a forgiving God. Amen, church. Last verse that we want to look at. Last misunderstood message. God forgives women to speak in church or hold leadership positions. Amen. Let's go home now. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, this is so common and... But I actually, I never come across it. It doesn't seem to happen in the circles that I'm in. But apparently it's really, really common in some church circles. And it comes from a couple of verses. Let's look up the first verse. It's from 1 Corinthians 14. Women should be silent during church meetings. Amen. Yes. <laughs> it is not proper for them to speak. Put up the next slide, please. Here's another one from 1 Timothy. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach or rule over their husbands. Let them listen quietly. Now, that seems quite clear enough. <laughs> However, Paul did not just write those individual verses. They were written inside whole paragraphs. And they had meaning. So let's put up the next one, please. 
which is the first one again, but a little bit more full. It says, women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law states. If they have any questions, now this is the key part, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Now here's the problem when we read these verses like that. When we say church meetings, we think of this. We think of a stage at the front and people sitting in rows and someone on a platform with a microphone or maybe if it's a more traditional church, you'll think of an altar rail and a priest at the front with robes on or maybe a pulpit that the preacher opens the back. But we think of churchy things. We instantly have a picture in our mind of what church is like. Now, what we need to understand is because we live in a free country where Christianity is not actively persecuted, that means we're free to meet in public like this. And because of that, churches in countries like ours, free countries, tend to operate the exact opposite way that churches in countries where they're being persecuted operate. So, in free countries like ours, when you think of church, most of the time you think of the larger public gathering. And in our culture, we tend to think of small groups that meet in homes and places like that as being um, additional or supplementary or optional. You know, I go to church every Sunday uh, but I may or may not choose to go to the small group at Stephen Gilly's house on Tuesday nights, okay? That's like optional. But in countries where Christianity is persecuted, it's the exact opposite. They will meet in larger groups in public when they are able to, when they're allowed to, when it is safe to. But most of the time when they're talking about church, they're talking about meeting in private in a home someplace so the authorities won't get them. Now, this verse here, I, like everybody else, used to read it and in my mind picture a Western church service. And if that's the case, you would think that it would mean nobody was allowed. I mean, like we had Lauren up here talking in a microphone and she's a woman. And she's got the title Pastor Lauren. Oh my goodness, let's take her out the fire exit and stone her at the end of the service. <laughs> because that's what we picture. But many, many years ago, long, long time ago when I was a younger person, and I was studying theology at college, and we were studying church history, and one of the professors read a quote from one of the early church fathers. His name is Oregon of Alexandria. And Oregon was one of the first Christian theologians in the early church. And he, he lived during a time when Christians were being persecuted. And uh, so much so that when he was a teenager, the authorities arrested his father, who was a Christian, and dragged him away 
to be thrown to the lions or whatever. And Oregon, he was so on fire with his faith that he wanted to be arrested too. And the only reason he wasn't able to, he was going to run out the house and shout, I'm a Christian too. And the only reason he wasn't able to do that was his mother hid his pants so that he wouldn't run out and get arrested and he wouldn't go out in the street naked so he didn't do it. And, uh, but thankfully he survived and then he became, became a great Christian teacher. And he lived during a time where Christians were being brutally and violently persecuted. And they had to meet in secret in homes. And homes only had like partition walls, like a curtain or something between rooms. And in this quote that the professor read out, Oregon was complaining about all the noise that was happening in the church. And it was nothing to do with not allowing Pastor Lauren to speak in a microphone. It was to do with the house churches that they met in in those days. And here's here's how the church services used to go. A group of Christians would meet in a house. The visiting teachers and elders and pastors would go around. Oregon was one of those teachers. And they would visit the houses. And people would gather together. And the women would all make a big meal. This is not a sexist thing. Men can make meals. In fact, the best chefs in the world are men. But that's another story. So (laughs) this is just explaining that culture. In that culture, it was the women who made the meals. The women would make the meals. And they would bring it through to the big room. And everyone together would have a meal together. They would start off by breaking bread and praying over it and passing it. And then they would have a meal and then they would pray over the wine and pass the cup. That was how they did communion. And they had it as part of a meal. It was called the agape feast, the love feast, the love meal. And they would eat together. And then at the end of that, as they passed the cup, they would pray and they would sing. And then the woman would take all the dishes out into the kitchen area and the teacher would start to teach. And this is what Oregon was complaining about. On the other side of that curtain, in the kitchen, I can't even hear myself think, he says, when I'm trying to preach. Those women are in there battering pans and pots about and talking in loud voices and joking. And then halfway through the sermon, they come back in and start saying to their husbands, what have I missed? What what was he talking about? What was I missed? What have I missed? And then Oregon said, can you not be quiet and ask your husband at home what you missed? Then he said this, has the apostle Paul not already addressed this issue? The equivalent would be at the end of the worship. Maybe the offering bucket's being passed and you think, oh, it's the offering. This is my chance to escape. And you all go out and get lattes. And the preacher is trying to preach. And the doors keep bursting open and you keep all walking in and saying to your wife or husband, what's he talking about today? What have I missed? And distracting everybody else. There was nothing sexist about this at all. It was to do with rude people disrupting services. So next time somebody tells you, 
Your church has got women pastors in it, and the Bible says that you can't have women pastors. You say, no, the Bible says you shouldn't batter pots and pans about and talk loudly during the service. Put up the next one, please. Men and women are equal. The Bible says we are all one in Christ. Philip had four daughters who prophesied in the church. Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, was a teacher of Scripture. But in the Bible, there's a female apostle called Junia. So this tells us that there were women who were able to preach and teach and prophesy and hold leadership positions in the church. And therefore, you need to take a second look at those other verses. Put up the next one, please. Here is a message of 1 Corinthians. Both genders are equal in God's eyes. On Fridays, we run through the service to make sure everything's right, and Mitch had naughtily changed the slide to all 97 genders are equal in God's eyes, he put up there. I said to him, I'm pretty sure 1 Corinthians 14 doesn't actually say that. So both genders are equal in God's eyes, and he calls both to serve him in various ways. However, we should conduct ourselves in a courteous manner and ensure that our practices are attracting and not deterring to people from our society as they come in amongst us. People, God and the Bible, are far less extreme and much more common sense and down to earth than many of us would actually give credit to. Do you know what God is saying? Come to me, I'm a good father. Believe in my son Jesus, he is a great savior. Go and follow my plan for your life. I've got a great life ahead of you. Love one another, people are are great. Get together and discover your gifts and form a church. Don't get caught up in divisive issues, but together form a family, form a community, and share the joy that you have found with the world, and nobody will find that resistible when they find people who love one another, care for one another, support one another, and encourage one another to live their best life, find their best gifts, and do the things that God has called them to do. Isn't it easy? Don't we complicate the Christian faith so much? Come on, let's start stand up together. We're going to pray this prayer. We're going to pray this prayer reaffirming that God is the God of relationships. God, family was God's idea, both natural and spiritual family. So let's lift up our hands to heaven and let's say this together. I live free from criticizing or judging others. I will love, accept, and be a blessing to everyone I meet God's blessing is upon me He gives me favor with everyone in my life I send God's love and His blessings to my
my family, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my colleagues, even to my enemies. May you know God's blessing. And may we all walk in God's love. In Jesus' name.